What is up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. This is Anthony. And this is James. We're going to do something a little different today. We're going to do Harry Potter, but specifically an episode on the villains of the franchise, which should be a lot of fun because amazing characters throughout this tri- this uh, amazing epic story that J.K. Rowling created. And we're going to be specifically be talking about the films in terms of the characters, maybe touch a little things, little differences here and there, but it's, it's going to be about the films. Obviously, there are some discrepancies, but... These stories, they're rife with incredible characters. The villains are just superb, and I can't wait to talk about them. Yeah, oftentimes what makes a movie great is uh, the antagonist or the villain. Uh, and J.K. Rowling crafted a number of interesting, memorable villainous characters in these films and in these books. And obviously, the big bad is Voldemort. But other than him, there's an, uh, several big villains in the franchise as well as pretty smaller villains. But uh, Harry is always put up against antagonists in different ways in each story. And it reveals more character traits about him and puts more obstacles in front of him that he must overcome. And I think she did, she did a great job crafting antagonistic forces. Yeah, and we're going to talk specifically about villains that have direct relationships with Harry, whether they're short relationships or long-term relationships, not characters that he doesn't really have any inter- interactions with at all. And also, there are several villains in the books that have a lot more to do, but in the movies they were kind of either eliminated completely or they just have small roles like Greyback is yeah, an Fenner, example. Greyback, yeah. um, so we're not going to talk about them too, too much because they have less to do in the movie. So this is going to be a, a movie-centered version of the villains of Harry Potter. Now, to begin this episode, obviously the first place we have to start is with the first villainous figures that Harry ever comes up against, and it's his own family, ironically, and mm-hmm. it's the Dursleys. Yeah, and the, the first villains we're introduced to are Harry's uncle Vernon, his aunt Petunia, um, and on his mother's side, on Lily's side, mm-hmm. and then his cousin Dudley. And since Petunia was born a muggle and her sister was a witch, um, parents, I mean daughters, both daughters of muggles, mm-hmm. she grew up with nothing but hateful envy of her sister Lily. And obviously we learn about that in the Half-Blood Prince and those flashbacks and everything, which she then took out on Harry Potter after he was left on their doorstep. And, and Vernon himself is just a very cynical, hateful man who who just dislikes anyone who's different than the status quo or what he thinks is proper. Yeah, and especially for Vernon, I'm sure that uh, he, when he learned about Harry's history and his family and the idea that wizards are real, I'm sure that uh, he treats him as though he's an inferior being and um, with, with so much hate and resentment. And, and Petunia, I think... Uh, she treats Harry the way she does, like you said, because she harbors so much resentment because Lily was the daughter who was chosen as a wizard and Petunia wasn't special. And so I think if, obviously, if Petunia was a wizard as well, she would have treated Harry better. And um, it, it goes to show you that uh, I think that uh, the Dursleys were the best thing to ever happen to Harry Potter mm-hmm. because uh, because of the way they tr- the, the way they raised him you can you can't even say they raised him the way they just kept him under their their sh- under their roof and and fed him and they they gave him no love and they pretty much gave him the, the minimal things necessary to survive and uh he wasn't given any respect or love or affection or anything and uh this instilled in him a great amount of moral character and and goodness within him and kindness and and the 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 willingness to sacrifice because he had nothing when he grew up and he was given nothing when he was when he grew up. Whereas if if Petunia and Vernon had raised him the same way they raised Dudley, imagine that spoiled a spoiled brat who was never satisfied. Um, if that was Harry as well, he would have become a villainous fa- a villainous character for sure because he would have been selfish and cruel and evil. And so I think that Dumbledore knew that he would be raised this way. And as a way to groom him and prepare him for 
the ultimate um, show, show, for the eventual uh, showdown against Voldemort. Yeah. If you like our podcast and content and want to help support us, the best thing you can do is subscribe to our YouTube channel, share our podcast with your film, movie, and TV friends. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave those five-star reviews and become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast, where you get specific perks like personalized messages, video messages, behind-the-scenes, sneak peeks, and top-tier patrons get a monthly shout-out on the podcast. I think you're right, and I think there's more to it than that specifically because when we eventually will compare Harry versus Tom Riddle's youth and how they're actually very similar, these orphans who grew up without their parents and in very tough living situations. Why did one become so evil and why become such a humble person? The books go into much more detail of the day-to-day torment that Harry receives at the hand of his family, especially Dudley, who's yeah. a, who's such a jerk to him. And and again, the inst- they out of complete hate of Harry, again, they, they over-spoil Dudley. They they treat him like a prince, resulting in creating the probably the, the rudest and, and most needy child in Britain, probably. Yeah, 100%. And, and Dudley, is they've just done so much work on him. I think, I remember, uh, I think Dumbledore in Half-Blood Prince comments on, in the book, he comments on how, like, they've done so much to this poor boy, and they think they're talking about Harry, but they're actually talking yeah, yeah, about yeah, Dudley. they're completely aloof about it. Because he eventually be- becomes so overweight and has such bad habits, and he's such a bully. And again, you're right, though, though they're a source of so much pain in Harry's life as a child, um, they're also the cause of his great humility, which is one of his greatest strengths because Harry never has that outgoing nature that his father, James, seemed to have, that fa- his father had. And that's just a direct result of being bullied every single day of his life, not just from his cousin, but his aunt and uncle too. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, that instilled in him the moral fiber necessary to overcome uh, the, indef- the the inevitable obstacles he would face because I think Dumbledore for sure knew he would be raised this way. And so he was preparing him. And... Because Dudley himself, they capture a spoiled kid perfectly because when you spoil a kid, what happens is they're never satisfied and they're never happy and nothing's ever enough. Like he gets the 34 presents and he's like, 34, last year year was 37. (laughs) (laughs) And so that kind of, if they had raised him like that, he would have been a horrible person. And so the Dursleys, I think, were necessary for Harry to become the character he is because there's so many great characters in Harry Potter and it's easy to choose a favorite that's not Harry Potter. But but Harry, I think, is is the greatest character J.K. Rowling created because he is just uh, pure goodness and he ends up making the, the greatest sacrifice um, by giving himself up to protect others. And I, I think that the main themes, the main theme of the Harry Potter series is love. And Harry, time and time again, shows love through his action which helps him accomplish many of his feats. Yeah, I just want to touch on what you just said a little earlier, though, about how you, you said Dumbledore knew he'd grow up like this. Dumbledore, I mean, yes, he he, he understood that Petunia and, and probably wasn't as good of a person as Lily had a lot of jealousy from. Obviously, we learned they had they exchanged letters, too, because Petunia asked to go to Hogwarts mm-hmm. with a letter. But Dumbledore dr- left him with his family because the Fidelis charm would keep him safe and secure until he's 17, until the yeah he's the, an adult yeah an adult and and he's comes of age, and also it's his only family. It's 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 right to leave him with family away from the the massive celebrity because what kind of person would he become if he grew up? Even if he grew up in like a foster home in the Wizarding World, he'd be the biggest celebrity in the world, he'd probably become just as bad as Dudley growing up like that. So I think yeah. that's also two reasons why he left them there. Yeah, if he grew up as a celebrity, he would have become morally bankrupt and morally corrupted by the celebrity of himself. And so he had to grow up outside of the Wizarding World. So 
It was probably Dumbledore's greatest act of genius to have him be raised by the Dursleys, even mm-hmm. though they weren't good people and he knew they wouldn't treat them treat him treat him properly. It was the best place for him. Yeah, and, I mean they make him sleep in the cupboard under the stairs. It's until so he's sad when 12. you in the first movie when you see him sleeping under the staircase. And yeah, just, and he's got the little models. And again, the books go into so much more detail how he has spiders and cobwebs webs hanging above him and. Uh, he gets meager meals at dinner and lunch and barely any breakfast. He's always doing chores and yeah, cleaning up after them. The clothes yeah. he gets are just hand-me-downs from Dudley, which are ab- enormous on him. So, like, they describe it even more in the book, how the shirts are, like, extra large with holes in them. And, he, and he's a tiny, skinny yeah. little boy. They did a good job on the first one. He's wearing that huge flannel shirt. It's yeah. gigantic on yeah. him. And, um... Dudley, they let him... They let Dudley beat him up all the time. And Vernon goes to extreme ways to... To prevent him from ever receiving that first letter at Hogwarts, ultimately taking him to that tiny island in the middle of nowhere until Harry's life changes when he finds out that he's a, a wizard from Hagrid and he gets his letter finally. And although each of his summers are still horrible throughout the franchise as he waits for the holiday to end so he can go back to his true home of Hogwarts every year, again, it's essential for him to be with these these villainous characters. But also, they're, they're not evil. I mean, they do take him in. And though Petunia does have this this hate for her sister or jealousy for her sister, she does protect Harry. And they do. You have to give them that. They do give him a home and, and give him feed him. And on top of that, in Deathly Hallows Part One, there is that moment when uh, the Dursleys are leaving and Harry's going to be in the house by himself. And there's that moment. There's a beat with him and Petunia, and you can see like she kind she regrets how she treated him. You can see just for a moment. It's like a, it's just a glance. It's just like a beat. But you can tell that she she clearly feels bad about how she had behaved towards him all his life. And you can see the regret in her eyes. And um, Fiona Shaw, the actress, did a really good job in that moment. And and for it's like for a moment, they, they kind of felt like they were family for the first time in 17 years. And then there's that h- hilarious moment where Dursley, where Dudley's like super sad. And he's and, like, why? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why isn't he coming yeah, with he's, us? Why is he not coming? <laughs> but also in the book, in the morning, uh, Dudley, Harry uh, opens his door in the morning and there's a tea that is at this door and he thinks there's a booby trap left yeah. by, by Dudley, but yeah. Dudley was actually just trying to be nice and give him a cup of tea for, yeah. for when he wakes up. But they don't really, they don't show that in the movie. I think in the Deathly Hallows, they show them getting in the car. Petunia, you know, they gave him protection. Even when threat of Voldemort, they knew that the family, they knew that James and Lily were killed, so they knew that there was danger present. Um, and she is rather like Snape pulls them take out their dislike on Harry because of his father or his mother. And so they're villains, but also in the you end... You empathize with them. Yeah, you understand what they... You don't understand why they treat him like that, but you understand that at some point, it's it's right for him to have been left with them. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole point, I think. 
Raiders of the Lost podcast is also brought to you by Manscaped. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Manscaped's been amazing. They've sent us everything from their lawnmower groomers, their performance packages, their their weed whackers, their their deodorants, deodorizers, colognes. The I'm obsessed again with the foot deodorant, which is keeps my toesies nice and fresh all day and all night. The cologne, again, is fantastic. The briefs are great. The t-shirts are comfortable. The the best clippers I've ever used in my life. Grooming is a necessary part of life. Gentlemen, fellas, get on manscaped.com. Get their groomers. Get the lawnmower. You'll never get another clippers for the rest of your life, of your life probably, I'm telling you. And ladies, this is a wonderful gift for all those fellas in your life. Again, 20% off your order and free shipping year-round using coupon code RaidersOfTheLost at checkout. And so one of the first antagonists in the Wizarding World that Harry meets is uh, Draco Malfoy on the train. And, and Draco uh, it comes from high society. And, and J.K. Rowling, there's so many great metaphors in her writing in these stories and, and in the films. And uh, she portrayed classism really well in this film and racism and prejudice in this film because uh, pure blood, high society, uh, smug, snobby villains, uh, they look down on both uh, muggles and mudbloods. Even though mudbloods are wizards, since they're part muggle, since they're part muggle, they are still viewed as inferior. Not all purebloods, but uh, these kinds of purebloods, like the Malfoys, um, they believe that the pure races, the pure race of wizards, are superior. Even half-bloods are Even, looked down upon. And so, sh- there's so many great instances uh, showing metaphors of prejudice and racism in these movies, and and I think that J.K. was brilliant with the way she portrayed it in these in these uh, stories. Yeah, because Draco is. One of his most personal antagonists throughout the entire franchise is incredibly smug and arrogant like his father. Um, he offers Harry's hand at their first meeting, to which Harry declines, choosing Ron instead of um, Malfoy because he can sort out the good type of wizards for himself, he says. Yeah, because how he saw the way he saw Malfoy speaking to Neville, Yeah, he saw that this, this is a bad kid. But the thing with Draco is... It's interesting because he wanted to be friends with Harry Potter, even though he caused the end of the Dark Lord, which in a way you can just imagine what was going through the wizarding world for the last 12 years through their minds. Obviously, a lot of people were like, oh, Harry Potter, this poor child, what he went through and how he survived is is a miracle. But also a lot of people, I'm sure, thought like maybe he's also this very dark wizard, very powerful, and maybe it's just he's going to grow up to be another dark lord just like Voldemort. And so I think Malfoy saw like the potential of this very powerful ally, ally, and he wanted to be friends with that, which is really interesting. And also because he is raised in a classist environment with his family— Obviously, the most famous wizard is of the highest class automatically. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's also why he's drawn to become Harry's friend immediately because he's the most famous wizard in the world. And he knows he's pure blood, too. Yeah, he knows he's pure blood and also the power thing because since he defeated Voldemort, maybe Harry is also going to be the greatest, one of the most powerful wizards of all time. And and it is an ironic thing where uh, there is an opportunity for Harry to become a Slytherin and to become a friend of of Malfoy. And it could have very easily gone the way of that route if it not had been for the way he was raised so the way he was raised prepared him for these moments because if he was raised similar to how Dudley was raised maybe in this moment maybe on the train he would have thought Ron was a loser and would have wanted to get a different cupboard and then when he met Malfoy he would have been more drawn to becoming friends with Malfoy because he saw that he also was a high society kind of person who expects a lot or cooler or something cooler. Like that, yeah. and so i think that harry would have been more drawn to malfoy immediately if he had been raised differently and so the choice to become a friend of 
to, to become a friend of Ron and then also the choice to become a Gryffindor, they are directly related to the way he was raised mm-hmm. and the kind of good, humble person that he is. And, and Draco is played super well by Tom Felton throughout the franchise. And he actually was the, one of the top choices to be Harry Potter until they uh, auditioned Daniel Radcliffe, who obviously was the best of them all. But he almost was Harry Potter throughout the series. And Draco is eventually a very tragic character. And a lot of it isn't his fault. Like Harry, his upbringing defines him. And Draco didn't choose where to be born like none of us. And evidently was raised some of the some of the worst wizards in England. And the Malfoys. And the influence of his family creates this horrible personality for this child. And Draco is very much a product of his environment. He was raised by these pure bud pure-blood elitists, and his father was a Death Eater to boot, despite the fact that he lies about saying that he was under the uh, Imperius curse, and mm-hmm. once Voldemort died, he just came to, apparently, that's what a lot of the Death Eaters Anyone said. Anyone who doesn't hasn't read the books, that means that he was being controlled by Voldemort to plus, do those things. Yeah, plus he has the psychopathic aunt, Bella, Bella um, and he's constantly talking about his father and this pure-blood superiority, and my father will hear about this, and... and He's he's always at constant competition with the great Harry Potter. Like, for example, when Harry becomes a seeker for Gryffindor, Draco's father buys brooms for all the Slytherin team so that Draco can be a seeker on the Slytherin team, too. So he's always trying to—he can never one-up Harry. He can never even match Harry without his resources. And also, Draco eventually, like you said, is a tragic character. And the reason for that is because he doesn't belong in the family he's in. Because eventually he rejects it, and he is kind of forced into what he ends up being having to do by Voldemort. And uh, there are many hints and instances where you can tell he's not Lucius. He's not like his father. He tries to be. I think he tries very hard to be like his father and to try to be like a Malfoy in what they're supposed to be like. But I think ultimately, like any good bully, uh, their anger and their aggression stems from insecurity. Mm-hmm. And a lack of confidence in themselves and, and struggles within themselves. And so I think uh, Draco is a, is a very flawed person. And so like every bully, they take their anxieties and their insecurities out on other people. And so ultimately, Draco doesn't belong in the Malfoy family, I think. It's maybe not that he doesn't belong. It's just that he, he doesn't he, – it's not who he truly is yeah. as a person. Because for the most part, Draco isn't much of a threat to Harry until – Really, Order of the Phoenix when he's become becomes a a prefect for the Inquisitor Squad for and he uh, starts Umbridge. to become an opposition from uh, uh, Dumbledore's army. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, Half Blood Prince is where Draco's character takes a very important turn for the franchise and gets a very important arc in the story where he's tasked by Voldemort to kill Dumbledore at Hogwarts. Which, in a way, you know, Voldemort knows he's not going to accomplish this, so he he gives him this task basically to to mess with Lucius. It's it's a punishment for Lucius's failures to yeah. make Malfoy have to go through the psychological torture of having to kill Dumbledore. Yeah, that's we can talk about that with Lucius because that's a great ta- talking point. And Draco, he's doing this out of fear, and Dumbledore knows that Draco is not going to be be doesn't have it in him to carry out the task of killing him, which is why he assigns Snape the duty of taking on the responsibility when Draco fails because he knows Draco will fail because he knows deep down who Draco really is, and he that's when uh, they're talking on top of the tower, and Dumbledore tell, tells him, "You're not a killer. You're not going to do this." So. Dumbledore knows who Draco is on the inside, and that com- that becomes a breaking point for Draco because he is he's been hiding who he, he not hiding but he's been trying to fit in with this group, the the evil group of wizards of wizards the Death Eaters, and then he clearly isn't one of them, 
And so when he's tasked with the, the objective of killing Dumbledore, he can't go through with it. Yeah, Dumbledore says your heart isn't in it to, to Draco. As he, he's sitting on the tower, and he could easily kill him even after he disarms him. Yeah. Um, but again, this this was not a great honor for what Draco was was told it was by Voldemort. Mm-hmm. It's not as, as he was advertised. But does does Draco deserve a redemption arc, which he eventually gets in Deathly Hollows? It's it's hard to ignore his years of repulsive behavior towards yeah. not just Harry, but Hermione and anyone that's not pure blood or anyone that's not wealthy. But again, his soul was never lost. He never killed. He was mostly, like you said, a very weak character who's just driven by fear. It's it's not out of being evil. He's an arrogant jerk, yeah, for sure. But he eventually chose to save Harry's life in Deathly Hollows when the trio gets caught by those snatchers in the woods, and yeah. and then Hermione does the Engorgio charm on on Harry's face to warp it and distort it. Draco pretends not to recognize Harry, which he hundred percent knows is Harry, but he chooses not to. Yeah. But so he he saves Harry's life at at the at the risk of of a great honor that could could become of his family by turning Harry Potter into Voldemort. Exactly. He stalls it so that Harry can live and survive. And also at at after a, Harry's apparent death when Voldemort is speaking to everyone and telling them to choose their side right now whether they're on his side or going to be against him in the future, Draco doesn't want to go onto his side, but he goes uh, at the after being convinced by his parents because secretly his parents want want to get out of there with him. And he is very reluctant to join their side, and he's just standing there with his schoolmates. And he does eventually go over there, and they have that awkward hug with Voldemort. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think Draco eventually is a good person, but he's not an evil person. He says and does horrible things, of course. But again, I think I think Half Blood Prince, that film and that book, really shows you the true character of of Draco because as the pressure mounts of his task by Voldemort, his his character or his his face and his mask that he puts on, it just slowly unravels. And that's, we finally get to see who Draco Malfoy really is below the surface of this fake persona. Yeah, that's a great point because his entire life, he had, he had spent it uh, acting as though he would be perfect for a duty like this. And it's something he would want to do. And he's even like made threatening comments about like killing mudbloods and stuff in the past. And so you would think that he would be the perfect choice for this, but ultimately it's not because he has always been overcompensating for who he really is. Yeah. And then obviously his father, Lucius Malfoy, is a, is actually an evil character in my opinion. Yeah. He does have somewhat of a redemption towards the end, but not really. He just really wants his son back and his yeah. family to survive. But um, again, he he's a pure blood fanatic. He's the one that raises Draco in this horrible way. Highly corrupt person, major influence in the Ministry of Magic, which leads to Voldemort's rise. So he's a pretty evil character. But again, he doesn't have too much interaction with Harry, so I don't want to spend too much time talking about well, him. Well, he does have the major impact in Chamber of Secrets. Yeah. Because I, I would say that he doesn't really redeem himself, but like you said, it's more he escapes with his family. But he does try to make Voldemort come back with the diary. Yeah. And he tries to make uh, Ginny Weasley the victim of it. And, and so he... he he has been living under the guise of uh, not having a choice as being a Death Eater for the last 12 years. And so being an important figure in the ministry, I'm sure a lot of people still view him as he was an evil figure and he was a Death Eater. Same thing with Snape. They have that that like uh, black stain on them. And the thing with Lucius is I think just like Draco, there's a similarity, similarity where they try to overcompensate. For example, Lucius says he wants the Dark Lord back and even tried to bring the Dark Lord back. And then when Voldemort finally does return and begins gaining power, 
it becomes it, it comes at the sacrifice of Lucius. And so I think Lucius slowly realizes that Voldemort being back is a horrible thing because he, as bad as Lucius is, he's not even close to as evil as Voldemort. And Voldemort begins, like you said, punishing him for his past mistakes by first taking over his household and then um, using his son as a pawn. And then I think the worst thing is taking Lucius's wand in Deathly Hallows Part 1. Like when, he, when Voldemort tells him he requires his wand, that face that Lucius gives is just pure shock and like imagine a wizard having to give up their wand that he've had all their lives and the reaction of when lucius thinks that he's gonna get voldemort's wand and voldemort's like you think i'm gonna give you my wand lucius <laughs> <laughs> and then his the wife in narcissa and, and draco's mother i don't really think she's much of a villain she's kind of just married into this uh family and this i'm sure she's a pure pure blood fanatic too but she doesn't really do anything too evil and she also saves harry's life in, De- in deathly yeah. hollows yeah she saves harry out of the the drive of saving her own son and so it's it's kind of a redemption but it's more of she's trying to get her son back which you can understand she's they're both parents and at the end of the day they're parents to a child and they want to protect their child most of all this episode of raiders of the lost podcast is sponsored by movieposters.com Use our coupon code RAIDERS15 to get 15% off your order today. MoviePosters.com is the number one site to get your posters online today. Not Amazon, MoviePosters.com. They have every kind of size, framing, backlighting. Pretty much every movie you can imagine, they make posters for them. Very high quality. They're sending us tons of posters. We already have a bunch of their posters on our set. And these are like the high-end posters. High quality. We love them. Use our coupon code RAIDERS15. At MoviePosters.com. Again, Raiders15 at MoviePosters.com to get 15% off your order today. And then in Sorcerer's Stone or Philosopher's Stone, whatever country you live in, uh, we have Professor Quirrell, who is a solid first villain, I think, in the the first movie because... um, it's easy to trick the audience in this first story because we don't know any of the characters, and so we don't know, really know what to expect. And then to have him as an undercover agent of the Dark Lord is, is a really interesting way to, to, to end the film. And he's a... He's, for the most part, he's very very uninteresting until the final act of the first film and book, and we get to see who he truly is uh, standing in front of the mirror of Erised. And he, he's clever, though, because he uses that, that stutter and that lack of confidence to divert any attention or suspicion away from him. Yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, I love Quirrell, and he, like you said, he blends in to this to, into the environment. He's not noticeable at all. And I think it's a great first villain to tease the franchise and also... Uh, it was really interesting to see Voldemort on the back of his head. And because at this point, Voldemort, we think everyone thinks he's dead, except for some. And we've discovered that he is barely alive and he's using Quirrell as a host. And I thought it was a brilliant scene. And also, this is the first instance where, like I mentioned earlier, Harry uses love to uh, uh, com- to uh, combat obstacles. And, and the power of love and the magic of, of his, his love of his mother is what eventually defeats Quirrell and Voldemort in this film. And we'll, we'll get to it later, but uh, love ends up becoming Voldemort's main uh, and main um, downfall. Yeah, because he completely misunderstands it and is ar- he arrogantly ignores it mm-hmm. in the different types of magic that love creates. But ultimately, solid first villain, even though he's like a half villain. Yeah, exactly. And um, uh, Ian Hart, is it is the actor, or Ian Holm? He's, he's fantastic in it. And he actually did... Uh, both Quirrell and Voldemort, so they did a, like a not motion capture, but they filmed him as the Voldemort face, and then they CGI'd it, and he also did the voice, so he did both roles in this. Oh, nice. And then in Philosopher's Stone, uh, we meet one of the most iconic characters of the entire franchise, and that's Severus Snape, played brilliantly by Alan Rickman. 
And yes, we all know he ends up becoming probably the, one of the greatest heroes of the story and a very important figure to defeating Voldemort. But uh, for many of the stories in films, and um, we, see, we view him as an antagonist figure, and he does eventually become, we apparently at the time, the way we think it, the way, the way we see it, he becomes a full-out villain by Half-Blood Prince, but um, he, has, he is one of the most interesting characters in the whole franchise because he always has this moral ambiguity, and you never really know, is he good, is he bad? You're, qu- you're constantly questioning it. Yeah, you have to put him on the villains list because even though he is a hero, he acts ver- like a villain towards Harry a lot in the yeah. books and in the film, and easily probably the most complex char- character in the entire franchise, the most tragic for sure. Um, he was originally a Death Eater, but switched sides after Voldemort killed Lily Potter, and Vo- Voldemort promised he'd spare her because Snape is the one that that told Voldemort about the prophecy that he overheard um, Professor Trelawney give to Dumbledore by accident. And so then he's the one that told Voldemort, Voldemort about this prophecy of this child being born, and which actually is interesting because it could have been Neville Longbottom too. Yeah, so anyone who doesn't know, the prophecy um, stated that a, a, a boy was born on a certain date, and this boy would uh, have the power to defeat Voldemort. And Harry and Neville have the same birthday. They were born on the same day. And so Voldemort had to choose which house he would go to, either uh, the Potter's house or the Longbottom's house. And he chose Harry's house first. And then we all know the story of how Lily's magic killed Voldemort when he tried to kill Harry. So uh, Neville Longbottom was very close to becoming the chosen one. It, it could have happened. Yeah, but also could it, would his parents done the same thing that James yeah. and Lily did yeah. and sacrificed themselves exactly. and create that, that, that relationship between Voldemort and, and mm-hmm. Harry like they did. But um, Dumbledore suggests that once Snape confesses and... And, and wants to know what to do, that he honor Lily's memory by protecting her son because we all know and learn that Snape spent his entire life in love with Lily, Pot- with Lily Potter. Yeah, they met before they went to Hogwarts. And the interesting thing about Snape is on a daily basis, this person, this character, has to battle both feelings and his love for Lily Potter as well as the guilt for helping cause her death, having hate and envy of James Potter, whom he also feels guilt for getting killed, and then seeing Harry Potter every day, the boy who looks just like one of his biggest rivals in school, who married the person that he loves, except for those glorious green eyes that Lily has. So you can imagine the daily turmoil that Professor Severus Snape has to go through every single time that he sees Harry Potter. Yeah, and that's the ambiguity I'm talking about because we don't we don't discover this until Deathly Hallows. And so when, when Snape is immediately um, resentful, and kind of hateful towards Harry, especially on their first meeting in, in the potions class and then throughout the series, even when he does aid Harry and save his life a few times, he still, he still seems to like harbor intense uh, resentment towards the boy. And we think it's because Harry killed Voldemort, Harry uh, defeated Voldemort, but ultimately we learn that it's because Harry looks just like James Potter. That's actually a common misconception. Well, that can be what you think, yeah. but personally, I think that Snape treats Harry so poorly and has this resentment or distaste for Harry because he wants to keep Harry as far away from him as possible, no relationship, no emotional feelings towards one another because that's the best way to protect Harry Potter. I because, think it's both. I, because, think both. I think you have a point, Yeah, too. because Snape is, again, he's a double agent, so he's going to be seeing Voldemort a lot. And, and if Voldemort thinks that him and Snape have this somewhat even friendly, close relationship, he'll, he'll try to use that to get close to Harry. So I think Snape... 
I don't think he hates James and takes that out on Harry. I think it's more he's trying to protect Harry. That's why he treats him like that. I think it could be a little of both, but I I absolutely for sure think it's because because it's mentioned so many times how much he looks like James. Yeah, and because James. James was, first of all, a bully to Snape, like you mentioned. He was a, a jerk to Snape when they were kids. And also, he married Lily, who Snape was madly in love with. And so I think if you have to see a person who reminds you of that person, I'm sure you can't hide the resentment and you just automatically have towards them. So I think it's a combination of both those things. But I think you I think you definitely have a good point there. I never thought about that. Yeah, and we learn a lot more about these characters between about Snape through those occlumency lessons with Harry Potter and Order of the Phoenix when we get little visions of Snape and James Potter and how, like you just said, James was a bully towards Snape. Um, but all, we eventually learn that Snape eventually cared a lot, a lot about Harry Potter and he's trying to protect him so much and throughout his entire life. And they show that when in Deathly Hollows when Harry's looking inside his memories at the end after Snape dies and we see the flashbacks of of Snape and Dumbledore and all their interactions about Harry and about Voldemort and and Snape is so upset that he learns that Dumbledore what he says is you've been raising him like a pig for slaughter and it's very emotional where Dumbledore says have you grown to care for the boy and he obviously casts his Patronus and it's the doe which is the same Patronus of Lily's Patronus because Patronus is obviously you can't control your Patronus is but it can change depending on who you love yeah yeah exactly and it's the doe like Lily and I think that's an important moment because it does reveal that because he loved Lily, he does love Harry. And that's what always—that's what he means when he says always. Because yeah. always means that my love for Lily Potter has never faltered. Even 12 years later, I still love her as much as I did the day she died. Yeah, and I, th- it's, I think it's the most emotional part of the entire series. And I, I get choked up just thinking about it because uh, you learn just how much sacrifice Snape carried out throughout the last 12 years. And how much of a risk it was and and how he was a very loyal death eater and then uh the death of lily turned him against voldemort and then he, it it became his main drive i mean he just like dumbledore his next the next 20 years of his life was dedicated to stopping to stopping voldemort eventually not not stopping voldemort it's protecting her son that's yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, te- yeah. that's the job that snape has yeah. that he agrees with dumbledore yeah. and Snape has to go through a lot. I mean, he spends his entire childhood being bullied. His his best friend married his bully. He had to protect someone who, you know, he probably hated at first, like you said, but then um, without knowing has to protect him. Um, He literally had to wait until the end of of his life to reveal his true identity of being a double agent actually working for Dumbledore in the end. He literally had to kill the one person that he w- that knew who he was as a double agent, the only person who trusted him still. He had to kill Dumbledore. Um, that's why Dumbledore says, please, on top of the tower that night. And he has to also go through so much other situations with the dark side, with the Dark Lord, like like the uh, unbreakable vow he has to agree to with Narcissa Malfoy. And that's exactly why the twist of him being a, a hero at the end is so great, because the, it's built up to this moment, and especially in Deathly Hallows and Half-Blood Prince. In Half-Blood Prince, when we learn that he is the Half-Blood Prince, and he ends up... Uh, escaping Hogwarts with the other Death Eaters and he ends up killing Dumbledore and it's so shocking when it happens and you understand you think that he really has been bad this whole time and after that he's he's a full-on villain you think and then in Deathly Hollows, on watching it on second on viewings or after you've read the books you you can see how he's he's trying his best to blend into these situations with uh, around when he's around Voldemort 
and around the other Death Eaters, and especially when he has to take over Hogwarts. I'm sure that was very painful for him to to carry out this horrible rule, like a tyrannical rule over Hogwarts, and and allow these horrible punishments to happen to his students, and and treat the other professors with with uh, e- with uh, evil intentions. And especially, I'm sure it was very painful to have to battle McGonagall. I'm sure that was difficult for him, and I'm sh- I think that's why he flew off rather than continuing the fight because he didn't want to hurt her. Oh, absolutely. And so Snape had was put into so many difficult situations that he had to carry out, uh, even though they were very much against his morality. And again, he was constantly protecting Harry Potter throughout the franchise. Obviously, he's protecting the school with the Sorcerer's Stone with his potions test at the, in the underneath Fluffy, which isn't completely related to Harry. But uh, he tries to mutter the counter curse to prevent Harry being pushed off his room that by Quirrell. Um, and he's he's basically and Azkaban he saves them from Lupin when he becomes a werewolf. Oh yeah, you're right. He sacrifices himself. <laughs> um, yeah, he puts himself on the line. In yeah, the, in the movie specifically, it's different in the yeah, book. Yeah, it's different. Yeah, he even helps him in Order of the Phoenix when he doesn't tell uh, Professor Umbridge what Harry and Hermione are talking about when they're when in the th- in the final act when she's trying to figure out what's going on. And then I think uh, most telling of all is in Half Blood Prince. Before Dumbledore is killed and the other Death Eaters are up on the tower with Dumbledore and Draco and then Harry's underneath them on under the floor and then uh, Snape runs into him and I mean it's a moment where Snape could kill Harry Potter but he he tells him to be quiet and and lets him go and it became it, that is a, a obviously a telling moment but right after he kills Dumbledore so you kind of forget about that but he does pretty much save Harry in that situation as well and obviously that's different in the book where he's actually Dumbledore put, freezes him underneath yeah. the uh, invisibility cloak. And then ultimately, Snape is the one that presents them with the sword of Gryffindor in Deathly Hollows in the underneath the frozen lake. Yeah. So, even though we have him on this villain list, he became probably the most vital character to Harry in his journey of uh, defeating Voldemort. And then Harry names one of his kids after him, Albus Severus Potter. Why did I say it like Dumbledore? All right, moving on. Let's let's move on to more villains. Uh, I don't think most people would even put him on a villainous, but I think Gilderoy Lockhart actually is a bit of a, a villain. He's amazingly played by um, Kenneth Branagh, and he's more of a fraud than a villain. But he does attempt to basically end Harry and Ron's lives by wiping their memories and yeah. making them go insane yeah. with a memory charm, which obviously it backfires, which he deserves. But he's built an entire career and persona off stealing people's stories while erasing their memories. So he's actually a pretty horrible person he, and criminal. Yeah, he's a he's a serious villain in the wizarding world. Yeah. Not so much to Harry until the end of the of the film, but like you said, he he ruins people's lives and he he I think he I think Chamber of Secrets might be the funniest movie out of the franchise. And he's part of the reason why it is because uh, Kenneth Branagh is hilarious and I love just like his office. And he's got all these like framed posters of his uh, of his books, and there are all these funny images of him. And the crew of the film they actually uh, photographed Kenneth Branagh as Gilderoy Lockhart in all these ridiculous situations and uh, to detailing his exploits. And there's like a whole series of hysterical photos of Gilderoy, of Gilderoy Lockhart. It's so funny! I'm gonna do a, a clip of it. It's great. But yeah, it's it's he adds a lot of levity to this to this film. And like you said, he's a fraud and. He's not, a, you would say, an antagonist until the very end, but he, he does give us a moment where we think he is going to overpower Harry and Ron and ruin everything. His intentions are horrible, yeah. for sure. Yeah, because he he decides that he's going to erase these kids' memories, allow let Ginny die by the monster, and then proclaim himself as a hero, just like he always has. And then in uh, Chamber of Secrets, we get our second look at Voldemort, but not the not the fully formed Voldemort again. 
it's a memory of Voldemort who is gaining power uh, second by second. And we also learn more about his history because the representation of Voldemort in this movie is Tom Riddle, the teenage uh, student version of him. Yeah, so Tom Riddle is, is the memory inside that actually we learn is a horcrux in that diary, which is a horcrux, which Harry defeats, ex- not knowing what he's doing when he stabs it with the basilisk fang, mm-hmm. uh, which actually, uh, because it's full of that venom, is able to destroy a horcrux. And this memory was left inevitably to, to try and find Harry Potter and get Harry Potter into the chamber down below so that Riddle can could use a victim to assume a full full humanity and a full life form, which he almost does, and so that he can kill Harry Potter. Yeah, and Tom Riddle is great because we think he is an ally to Harry at first because as, mis- as Harry's trying to solve the mystery of the Chamber of Secrets, uh, Tom Riddle in the diary uh, reveals mem- memories of him at school regarding um, his relationship with Hagrid. And Aragog, and, and Tom Riddle completely hints that uh, the monster in the chamber is Aragog, the spider that uh, Hagrid adopted, and and so he's throwing Harry off his own scent uh, and preparing him for their confrontation. And the interesting thing about Riddle is one of my favorite shots of the film is when he's speaking with the young Dumbledore on those stairs in that memory, and you really get to see this great look on on Tom Riddle's face, like the way he looks at Dumbledore, like. Obviously, at the time, Dumbledore was the most powerful wizard of the wor- in the world at- and still was in modern day with Harry Potter in his life. But you see, like, the competitiveness that is in Tom Riddle's eyes and how he wants to surpass Dumbledore. And he- you can see that, like, someday the resentment. we'll be rivals someday or I- I'm going ex- to exceed your power someday. And I, I want to talk more about Tom later on, but I think this is an example of uh, Tom blends in when he's in school. He's perfectly able to blend in and not show his true nature. But Dumbledore seems to know that there's something off about Tom. Um, and I think he's the only one who sees through Tom Riddle. And I think that Tom understands that. So yeah. they have a, a, an antagonist relationship with one another. Yeah, he says he kept an annoyingly close eye on me after that. Exactly. But we eventually learn later on why. Yeah. And then obviously you brought up Aragog, which I wouldn't even put him on a villain list because he's just a monster. It's in his nature to eat human beings. So <laughs> that's not really anything to be too concerned about. Yeah. And then the the snake, the basilisk, is obviously one of the greatest parts of the of the of the film in Chamber of Secrets. And yeah. one of the, he's again not quite a villain because it's just a monster. It's what it's supposed to do. But it's a great scene and amazing practical special effects of they actually built this gigantic uh, serpent and it it still looks better than CGI. Like when still. it attacks Harry and yeah. he stabs it. And it, it's I remember when I was a kid and we saw this movie. I was terrified of it as uh, when we saw it in theaters and it's a great moment and it's such a, a memorable scene chamber of secrets i think is an underrated harry potter film it's number three i think on my list yeah it's, it's, it's up amazing there for sure. and again if you guys want a more in-depth harry potter episode we've already done it so go back and check out our harry potter one harry potter episode where we did every single movie yeah maybe if you guys like these episodes we'll do each movie on its own someday all right and then let's, let's get on to prisoner of azkaban because we get a oh, lot yeah. more interesting characters and i think the first villain that we meet obviously is aunt marge which is <laughs> Vernon sister this portly woman who is just as wicked as vernon maybe more and she treats again harry like a lower citizen it's kind of like how we were just talking about district nine in the last episode and she's like a subspecies of being they're like the malfoys of of human of the human world kind of yeah and it show it goes to show you that uh for growing up in such a horrible family it's it's amazing that harry turned out so well and it's because of the way he's treated by these people and and marge speaks to him worse than the other two do and it's it's she's a despicable woman and uh alfonso Cuaron added a lot of um darkness 
uh, and intrigue to this movie, to the franchise. But this is a scene that is just so funny and entertaining when you see her blow up by uh, Harry's accidental spell. And it's just, it's so much fun. Because he doesn't, she doesn't like fly off in the, in like in the book. In the book, yeah. she just blows up. But like to have her see her float away, it's yeah. just, it's so uh, rewarding for, for uh-huh. the character of Harry to have that happen. Yeah. And then um, the next villains we, we meet in this story are the Dementors who are, we, we see on the train and make Harry paint, faint. And Harry has all these fainting spells whenever he's around these because these Dementors, they're these cloaked, hooded, non human beings, the most foul creatures of despair that they'll suck out your soul they leave no trace of happiness um jk rowling based them directly on depression and she she came up with them because she went through very intense spells of depression early on while writing these franchise and writing these books and so basically they represent that depression yeah and i think the dementors i would say are the the most horrific monster in the harry potter franchise because they're not so much like a monster like the basilisk or aragog but I just think the idea of having your soul sucked out by a monstrous being is just the most horrible punishment you can imagine. It's worse than death. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The Dementor's kiss is just, I think that's terrifying. And the Dementors have a profound effect on Harry, more so than anyone else when they're around because of Harry's past and he's dealt with trauma in his life. And so when the Dementors show up, he has this embarrassing thing of, of passing out and he doesn't understand why until Lupin reveals uh, more information about uh, how Dementors operate and what they are. Yeah, because Lupin tells him that he has true horrors in his past and yeah. his life, and that's why they affect him more, and that's why he hears his mother scream every time he passes out. Yeah. And Dumbledore explains that they're they're vicious creatures and will not distinguish between not distinguish between the one they want and the one that gets in their way. Um and and they guard Azkaban. They guard the wizarding prison. Why? Because their power to drain happiness and hope from human beings prevents people from, of course, wanting to escape a jail. You're, you're not going to get any Andy Dufresnes inside Azkaban, <laughs> so no one's going to try to, to <laughs> that's good. scoop a hole out of a wall and put up a poster because yeah. that's why they're there. They're there to prevent prisoners from having hope or will of living and escaping. Also, they get free daily meals of human beings. <laughs> In the cafeteria. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> and then the, the Dementors, we don't get to see too much of them for the rest of the films. They pop up in Deathly Hallows, but they are uh, heavily used in Azkaban because uh, they eventually are put into the, the grounds of Hogwarts because they are sent there to protect the grounds from, I think, the, the greatest villain of the Azkaban film, and that's Sirius Black. And it's not so much, yes, Sirius becomes... Um, a father figure to Harry and uh, one of the best heroes of the franchise. But in this movie, his villainous portrayal weighs heavy on the characters in the plot of the film. Yeah, so yeah, he, obviously Sirius is not a villain in no way. But like you just said, like the persona and the believed persona of Sirius Black is a villain throughout the entire story of Azkaban. Yeah. And I, I, it's really interesting how... Sirius is able to escape Azkaban. I don't, they don't really explain it in the movies too much. I think they just mentioned that because he becomes a dog. But yeah. because he knows his innocence and he's able to transform into a dog with because he's an animagi. Animagi. Someone's going to make fun of me. Yeah. yeah, someone's going to make fun of my pronunciation yeah. of that. Um, Canceled. Canceled. <laughs> oh, you pronounced animagus. I'm unsubscribing because you pronounced animagus incorrectly. Yeah, and so he's able to turn into a dog while he's in Azkaban and... Dementors can really only feed off human beings because they have so much more emotion, but they don't really register animals. And because, like you said, he knew that he was innocent, that allowed him to uh, fight off the Dementors' draining of uh, humanity. And he also knew because Peter Pettigrew was alive. And in the book, they explain that um, when 
uh, the Minister of Magic was visiting Azkaban. He had a newspaper and he gave it to Sirius Black because he asked for it. And even the minister was surprised how like normal he was, the only normal person inside the prison, because again, mm-hmm. he still was not being sucked of his of his soul and in, in, in hope by the Dementors. And when he opened up the newspaper, he saw Peter Pettigrew as a rat on Ron's shoulder. So that's yeah. basically what kickstarts the whole story of Prisoner of Azkaban. And the reason why he was able to identify Peter was because the rat was missing a finger. And the story behind Sirius Black's crime is that he killed Peter Pettigrew. And all that was left was a finger. Yeah, and so, but just real quick on Sirius Black, more on the perception of him being a villain is exactly that. that because it's the driving force yeah. of the conflict of yeah. the movie. Yeah, and he's uh, he, he turns into that big black shaggy dog, which is actually looks very scary and growls a lot when he. Just, and also is a representation of the Grim. Yeah, the basically exactly. Of the Grimm. And then also. Uh, he breaks into Gryffindor Tower to try to kill Peter Bettergrew by slicing up the old lady's painting to get inside. And so mm-hmm. obviously we think he's a bad guy the whole time. Yeah, he's but, not. but ultimately he becomes a very important figure to Harry and to the story. And we learn that Peter Pettigrew was actually the true villain of Prisoner of Azkaban and one of the most horrible antagonists that Harry has in his life. And he's the main reason why Harry's has no parents is Peter Pettigrew. And he's this completely repulsive character. And for 12 years... Peter was believed to have been blown up by Sirius Black, and they believed that Sirius blew up this entire street, which killed Pettigrew, and all that was left was the finger, and then all these muggles were there too. But really, Peter's the one that blew up the street, killed all the muggles, cut off his finger, turned into a rat, and framed Sirius Black. And also, Peter is the reason why Lily and James Potter were killed, because Peter was good friends with the Potters and Sirius and Lupin when they were in Hogwarts, and, and they grew up together And as, as adults. Uh, Peter Pettigrew... Uh, out of fear of uh, of Voldemort, revealed where the Potters lived, and that is where that is how uh, Voldemort uh, found them. Well, that's a very Muggle way to explain it. Yeah. What really happened was Sirius was the original secret keeper of their whereabouts, and a secret keeper cannot yeah. you can't figure out who they where they the location of their secret is. But at last minute, Sirius suggested that Peter become the secret keeper of the Potters' home and safety location. Uh, so that because he thought that Voldemort would come after Sirius, which is obviously a big mistake because he didn't think that Peter would succumb to to the Dark Lord and just give up give up his friends right away. It was a mistake because because we learned that Peter Pettigrew is a very weak person and he he cares about one thing more than anything else and it's his own survival, which is why he does that, which is why he serves the Dark Lord and Voldemort even says, "You serve me out of fear, not loyalty," which is why he doesn't respect Peter. And yes, he repairs his hand, but he knows that, yes, Peter is a loyal servant, but not out of his love for Voldemort, but out of fear of his death. And it's just weird, man. That guy lived for over, for like 14 years, 12 years as a rat in Ron's family. That's disgusting. Yeah, and that, but it's great when, they, uh, when he reveals himself and the character design of him because he has taken on many traits of characteristics of rat. Like yeah. he, he, his teeth grew. He has that crazy hair, his the ears nose. are big, the nose, his, his fingers are long. So I like how they added that to the character. Really great design. And as a child, he was a in, in at, when he attended Hogwarts. He was a part of the Marauders crew and helped the Marauders map. And he was uh, best friends with Sirius, James, and and Remus. And actually was just a massive admirer of James and Sirius in general. And he became an animagus to help Lupin deal with his transformations of a werewolf like the others. Yeah, is the one who puts this. He's he presses the button to stop the Whomping Willow from going crazy, so they go inside the Shrieking Track. You all know the story. You yeah, all know. You guys know. Number four, uh, Goblet of Fire. We get to. Touch on Death Eaters, which we've been hearing so much about. Obviously, you read about them, and uh, we know Lucius was a former Death Eater, but we finally get to see what they're capable of and how they act around people. And they take over the uh, Quidditch World Cup after Ireland beats um, 
Romania? Bulgaria. 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 And they wreak havoc on the crowd, and they they shoot up the dark mark into the sky. And the Death Eaters are just horrible people. They're followers of Voldemort. And the most famous one is obviously Fenrir Greyback, who has a lot more to do in the books, but he's a werewolf. Who, yeah, he's part werewolf. Who's yeah. developed a taste of blood. He positions himself around children when he's about to transform you're anyways. right yeah. yeah you're right I, yeah it's okay man that's why i'm here i'm the harry potter expert it's very dense books yeah don't worry i got you play this is a great intro for the film uh this dark attack on the the quidditch fans because uh it, it, it's the moment where we can see that the death eaters are very much like terrorists in the wizarding world and uh they try they're eliciting violence and, and death and destruction and also um you can you can align them with uh very similar to KKK members and they even wear they're dressed in all black but they have the long tall hoods and capes and stuff so uh, I think their appearance it, it reminds you of the KKK yeah. and, and they represent pure evil in the wizarding world whereas the KKK represent pure evil in humanity and um, I think that they we finally see that it's not just Voldemort that's evil in the wizarding world there are a lot of evil wizards out there that aren't the dark lord but they also want to cause harm to everyone else as well and the main villain of Goblet of Fire, not until the end, is uh, Barty Crouch Jr., played awesomely by uh, David Tennant, the Doctor from Doctor, Doctor Who. Um, he obviously doesn't have a ton of screen time in this film because he's disguised as Professor Mad-Eye Moody, and, which is a really interesting relationship, which we'll get into in a little bit. But uh, he's the son of Barty Crouch, who's the head of the Department of International Magical Corporation. Um, and it's it's really interesting because Moody is such a cool character when you're reading the book and watching the movie. You like him a lot. He's kind of like Brendan Gleeson's yeah, fantastic. It's like he's like a Navy SEAL of wizards. He's an, he's an aura. <laughs> he's like a green beret. He's like the greatest aura in the in the department. Um, he's a great dark wizard detective and capturer, which is what Harry wants to become. Um, but it's so clever the plot that they come up with where they're disguised. He's disguised as Moody in order to eventually. Get Harry into the tri- into the Triwizard Tournament despite being underage, getting his name into the Goblet of Fire, helping him throughout all of his tasks throughout the story and the film of all the uh, the tournament uh, obstacles, mm-hmm. and then eventually turning the Triwizard Tournament trophy into a port key to transport him to that cemetery of Tom Riddle Senior's grave. Yeah, and and Barty Crouch um, is great, the David Tennant version as well because. Uh, we were we see that memory of I can't remember that 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 Death Eater who's on trial and he reveals that it's Barty it's, Crouch. It's, uh, it's uh, the Bulgarian, Bulgarian, yeah, the school leader, yeah. yeah. Um, and David Tennant does this really great thing where um, he has this twitch in the film as Barty Crouch Jr. where he he licks his he sticks his tongue out and like really quickly like a kind of like a snake. And this is a hint that whenever Mad Eye does this in the film, it means his potion is running out and he needs to, a new supply and. Uh, he's becoming close to transforming back into Barty. So if you watch the film on repeat viewings and you see all the the small instances of Mad Eye licking his sticking his tongue out like that, it's a really fun little Easter egg hint that um, Barty's about to transform. And that's why when he does it in front of Barty Crouch Senior, Barty Crouch Senior just like looks at him really closely. He's like, I haven't seen anyone do that since my son used to do it. So you can only imagine what's going through his head. Yeah, but it's actually cool. Like he seems like the most successful 
defensive against the dark arts teacher they've had up until yeah. that point. And you see, he teaches them a lot, but he does go through the the three unforgivable curses with yeah. the spiders, which obviously I think is, is a plot device to prepare us for the most important curses, which are coming up soon. Yeah, it's, it's like a teaching, it's like a class for the audience. Yeah, exactly, because we need to know what the Imperius curse is. We need to know what the Cruciata curse is. And obviously we know what Avgada Cadaver curse is, but we, we haven't really seen it done before. Mm-hmm. And obviously they're setting up for the end of the film. But um, also, why why is Barty Crouch Jr. trying to do this? Is he trying to not what he says prepare students for what they're going to see, but maybe intimidate them? Like this is what's going to happen to you if you don't buck up eventually when the Dark Lord rises. Yeah, it's a good point, and because what's going to happen is when the Dark Lord does rise and Hogwarts has been taken over, those kinds of curses like the Crucio is gonna it, it ends up being used on students as punishment, and it used to be uh, like back in the old olden days and. Um, obviously, it's a, a horrible, ruthless thing to do to students. And, and uh, but yeah, ultimately, Barty's mission is to to bring Harry to the cemetery uh, of Tom Riddle's parents' grave and to help bring Bo- Voldemort back to life again. Yeah, but we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to Voldemort, yeah. which we're saying for the end more yeah. more in depth. And um, we ultimately don't learn much more about Barty Crouch Jr. Besides this, he doesn't have much more depth as a character, and we just basically he spends a little time as Mad Eye Moody. Yeah, and then he just gets thrown in an Azkaban, so he never shows up again. Order of the Phoenix is a is a great film, and we're introduced to even more characters. And uh, one of my favorite villains in the franchise is Bellatrix Lestrange, who we learn about. And obviously, Sirius explains who she is when he's given Harry a tour of his family tree. His his deranged cousin Bella, um, played brilliantly by Helena Bonham Carter. She's so good as this character. She's Sirius's cousin, completely mad driven more insane while she's in Azkaban until she is, she escapes in Prisoner of Azkaban, the, the story. And her her thing is she pledges obsessive fealty to Voldemort, and her entire life she devotes to Lord Voldemort. And she's probably, if you think about it, the most sadistic character in the entire franchise. The things that she's done is that the things that she does and she's also ironically described as being incredibly attractive and beautiful, like all members of the Black family tree which is ironic to of how ugly of a person she is on the inside. Yeah, and also like when you whenever when you imagine a witch and what a witch would look like, it's like Bellatrix. Yeah, the crazy hair and the the black outfit. Although she's not old, but she has like the voice and she has a lot of the characteristics you imagine in, as a witch, non Harry Potter witch. And and I love Bellatrix. She's a great character. And like, as you said, she's so devoted to Voldemort. I think that she's in love with Voldemort. Absolutely. And I think everything Bellatrix does is driven with the motivation to get closer to him in some capacity, but she doesn't understand that Voldemort doesn't want to get close to anyone. Absolutely. Yeah. It's even very telling in Deathly Hollows in the in part one in the movie in the book. In that meeting. In the meeting with all the Death Eaters at that long table at Malfoy Manor where Voldemort actually makes fun of Bellatrix for her son, her ne- her niece marrying the werewolf because Tonks is her, her niece and yeah. she marries uh, Lupin. And she makes fun of Bella for this. But even after that, Bella still is just obsessed with getting some recognition from Voldemort, which she eventually does. And she yeah. just leans over the table and is like trying to she's get close to him. for his validation. So she just does everything for the Dark Lord. Bellatrix is famous for killing the Longbottoms. So she murdered Neville's parents back in the day. And, um, and there's that great scene where in Order of the Phoenix where she asks him how his parents are and he says, about to be avenged, thank you very much. Yeah, and actually in the books, she doesn't kill them. She just drives them insane for, with the Cruciatus curse and she, they're inside that psych ward yeah. in the wizarding world. Yeah, but in the movies, they're dead. Yeah. yeah. I think Helena Bonham Carter brought so much energy and humor and she's, a, she, she's like very much, she's very childlike 
as a person. She's very immature, but she enjoys causing death and she enjoys causing destruction. And you could say, like you said, she probably is the most sadistic character because Voldemort's the most evil, but I don't think anyone gets as much pleasure out of what they do as Bellatrix does. And one of my favorite scenes of Bellatrix, probably my very favorite, is when Hermione is pretending to be Bellatrix. Yeah, so fun. And it's so great. I love it. And just like you just said, she gets pleasure out of it. Like when she throws the knife at them while they're apparating from Malfoy Manor and Deathly Hollows, and the knife gets stuck inside their apparition with mm-hmm. Dobby, and, and actually the knife kills Dobby. Um, you can see the pleasure that she gets just from getting the knife in there, knowing that it's going to kill somebody. Yeah, someone's going to get hit by it. Yeah, yeah. And so there, she has so many great character moments. Another great one is when she's she's um, running from Harry, and Harry's so angry that she killed Sirius because she kills her cousin. That's how crazy she is. Yeah. One of the most depressing scenes in, in the entire franchise. And uh, when she's explained, Harry's trying to do the Cruciatus curse to her, and she's like, you have to mean it. You have to really want it. And then Voldemort's in his ear trying to get her, get him to kill her. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough moment for him. And she's just chant, she's just t- taunting him like, "I killed Sirius Black," but she's she's an incredibly dark character, but just very entertaining and interesting character. And then we have Dolores Umbridge. It's she's the, the best villain besides Voldemort, probably, definitely played by Imelda Staunton, who I'm sure she's an incredibly nice and totally normal person in real life, but she does such an incredible job making you really want to hate this character and utterly despise and loathe Dolores Umbridge. I couldn't... One of the best castings as well in, in all the characters. Yeah, well, every character is so well cast in yeah. these movies, but she Dolores Umbridge is so brilliant of a character because uh, she is a complete contradiction because on, on the surface, it's all pink and bubbly and, and, and kindness and, and sweet tones and and present uh, clean and neat presentation but on the inside she's pure evil and cruel and ruthless and she just wants to punish and it's just an amazing contradiction that you rarely see of a character contradicting their outside of appearance versus their inner uh, true being yeah, and another contradiction of hers that she actually shares with Voldemort is the history of her character she's a half-blood so she had a muggle mother and a wizard father and Voldemort had a wizard mother and a muggle father. And despite both of them being half-bloods, they're not pure-bloods, they are pure-blood fanatics. They're and obsessed. They, they try to make it seem like they're pure-blood. Voldemort never admits that he's a, he's a half-blood. He never really does. And Voldemort, even we'll get into later on, even takes it to the step where even though he's half-blood, he wants to be more powerful than any other uh, pure-blood. And they both want to seem like they're exceptions to being pure-blood. And she uses um, also the locket. She uses and says that she uses that as a representation that she's a pure blood. This is an old family, old family heirloom. Exactly, and the irony—they both are very ironic characters. And the irony of, of Umbridge is that, for being a, a, a half blood, she becomes she's put in charge of putting mud bloods and half bloods on trial in the Ministry mm-hmm. in the Deathly Hollows film. So she becomes the overseer, like the judge and jury of of these wizards being put on trial so she is the deciding factor and you can see the the enjoyment and pleasure she gets out of um instilling so much fear and misery in these people and she as Voldemort wisely chose her because she is perfect for that role because I think that Dolores more than anything enjoys disciplining people absolutely she also is incredibly ambitious and power hungry probably almost just as power hungry as Voldemort is because that's really all she wants in life, and it doesn't matter where she gets power, but she 
she uses Hogwarts to get the most power she can. She she works the ministry and she's a, a direct undersecretary to the Minister of Magic, Cornelius Fudge, that we see um, in Order of the Phoenix in the beginning when they have Dumbledore leave his job and then she becomes eventually headmistress of Hogwarts. And this is where she becomes completely corrupt with power and she hates children despite being a professor and then working and becoming a headmistress of, of Hogwarts. But she uses this platform, this area because... Children are easy targets to gain complete power over. Yeah. So that's why she chooses this position at Hogwarts. Yeah, and then you can, you in Order of the Phoenix, we get to see just how ruthless of a character she is by um, when Harry is in detention with her and um, she gives him that special quill pen. She tells him to write on the paper, I must not tell lies. And as he writes it, uh, the flesh on his hand begins slicing open with the same writing. And... This is something she's doing to all the children as punishment. So uh, what kind of person enjoys literally cutting children as punishment? It's just such cruelty, and it's just a hint to the true nature within her. And I think the most telling thing about Dolores and her soul and how wicked she is is in Deathly Hollows when she gets the the locket from Nungus and she's wearing it at the Ministry uh, while interrogating all these these supposed half bloods or mud bloods or, or yeah, muggleborns, I'm sorry, yeah. I, I didn't mean to use an offensive term, mud blood, muggleborns. <laughs> um, she's usually the locket. We learn when when Ron, Harry, or Hermione wear it, they're they're moody and they're always angry and irritable, and it just sucks the the happiness out of them and it takes a toll on them. When Dolores wears it, she's so happy. She has a Patronus going, protecting everybody from dozens. And yeah. dozens of Dementors, and the way you cast a Patronus, obviously we all know, is you have to think a happy thought. And what kind of wicked person can think happy thoughts while wearing that locket? That's a great point. She's a complete sociopath. You're absolutely right. I never thought of that. I mean, I've read Gen- the books a few times. Genius. Know. Genius. Yeah. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate <laughs> it. But she's such a fascinating character. I, it's a, such a well-made movie, Order of the Phoenix, and the book's great, but like, it's still like I sometimes hate watching it because of her characters. Yeah, I hate so her despicable. so much, and I loathe her, but it's yeah. a great movie. That's the thing. Yeah, 100%. Also, um, from Order of the Phoenix, then moving on for the rest of the franchise, I think one of the major villains in this film, in the stories, is the Ministry of Magic because J.K. Rowling does a great job reflecting the corruption of all political systems and governing bodies that have ever existed. It's not lies. Every governing body has is full of corruption. Um, and the Ministry of Magic, as it becomes more and more, uh, they become more corrupt the more control they lose. And they, they're trying to save face. They're trying to seem like everything's fine. They lie. They're in denial. They're hiding facts. I mean, like they, they keep Stan Shunpike and Azkaban for no reason but to make it seem like they're they're getting things done until there's a full-blown infiltration and corruption of the entire Ministry of Magic. Yeah, and they also keep denying the fact that Voldemort came back. Yeah. So, like you said, uh, this is where the books finally get political because J.K. never really put too much too many politics into the stories beforehand, but it becomes vital because the world's getting bigger and the scope of the story's getting bigger, so we have to see the rest of the Wizarding World, and obviously we have to see those who are in power and who are governing. And as Voldemort has... Now that Voldemort has risen and he's gaining power, his former followers are loyal to him again, and many of them are positioned in pieces of power within the Ministry, so the Ministry is becoming corrupted because of Voldemort's return. And I think one of the most disturbing uh, moments of the entire franchise is in Deathly Hallows Part 1 when they break into the Ministry. And you can see how much it's changed now that Dolores is uh, overseeing it. Um, she's not overseeing the whole Ministry, but 
Um, she's in charge. She's in charge of, of like the, basically the marketing yeah, campaigns yeah. and like the the undesirables. undesirables. Yeah, and also in in the trials she's carrying out with the the half bloods and Muggleborns and. But I think the most one of the most disturbing images in the whole franchise is that new giant statue in the center of the ministry, which shows uh, a wizard standing on top of a block of concrete, and underneath the concrete are humans, uh, muggles, struggling to hold the concrete up. And it, and it says uh, "magic is might" on it, which is instilling the idea of like very much uh, similar to like a Nazi system, where this is a superior race and this is a, an inferior race. So and, I think and it's, you can see that they are planning on world domination. Yeah, so it's an incredibly powerful and disturbing image in the franchise. And I think in the book and movie, Hermione says something like uh, putting muggles in their place. That's yeah, what they're yeah something like that. Yeah. yeah. And then let's move on to Lord Voldemort. You all were patient. This is the you last. Knew he was coming. Yeah, the last villain we'll talk about. Obviously, there are smaller villains in Deathly Hallows, but this, we're just going to do Lord Voldemort, Tom Riddle, the most powerful evil dark wizard of all time blind with ambition and power and ultimate power and hubris he fancies himself a god has these snake-like qualities um the, the cool thing about it is is rafe finds rafe is how you pronounce his name everybody not ralph yeah he's no, welsh got, he's welsh descent and that's how you say people rafe. have tried to call us out on it it's, it's pronounced rafe finds he doesn't really wear much makeup when he's in Voldemort. He, he they just pale his face up and then they put these black dots on him because a lot of what they do is uh, CGI in in and uh, in post production for the yeah the, they erase his nose erasing his nose and the yeah. snake like qualities and the eyes and everything. Um, Harry and, and Tom Riddle and Voldemort they have they have some similarities. Obviously, both orphan children. They grew up without their parents, which shaped who they became. Would Tom Riddle have become Lord Voldemort if he wasn't raised in that orphanage? Would he have still been evil? His mother died in childbirth, we learn, after their father abandoned them, after he was released from the prison of of that love potion that Riddle's mother had been giving him. But I, I still think that Tom Riddle definitely would have been enticed by the dark arts, for sure, because he was in Slytherin, and he's very powerful. He had these unnatural abilities, like speaking to snakes, and I think he would have eventually learned that he was the descendant of Salazar Slytherin. Um, this would have just piqued his curiosity more, and... You can you can argue that the lack of having a mother's love made his ambitions and hate even more crazy, but I think he still would have been a very dark, powerful wizard either way. I think a hundred percent because I, uh, Tom Riddle, was born evil, and it's a brilliant depiction of him in Half Blood Prince. Uh, we see two, two versions of him as a young kid. He's about like nine or ten when uh, Dumbledore finds him in the orphanage, and then when he, a teenager, uh, a few years into Hogwarts. And when he's a kid and he's in that orphanage and Dumbledore visits him, uh, this it's an, one of my favorite scenes of the entire series. And you get to see this fascinating portrayal of a young Tom Riddle, and you see how disconnected he is. And I don't think it's because he's an orphan, because Harry's an orphan as well. I think that it's a portrayal that it's similar to a, like a young serial killer, how they're cut off, they're emotionless, um, and they just are inherently evil, and they, it's just their nature. So I think this is who Tom Riddle is. He's very much like a serial killer because he says that he tells Dumbledore that he likes to he can hurt things with his magic. He doesn't know it's magic, but he says he can hurt things. And so that begs the question, like, what has he hurt? Who has he hurt? So he's used his powers for nefarious reasons and obviously has enjoyed it. And on top of that, he can speak parcel tongue. And, and also, when Dumbledore uh, burns the closet with the fire... Tom's reaction to the fire burning is amazement rather than fear. He enjoys this this kind of scary situation. He th- he gets a thrill from it. 
And so I think that Tom Riddle has always been evil. I think he was born evil. And so I think no matter what happened, he would have become an evil wizard. I agree and disagree with you. So I, I believe, and I've watched a lot of serial killer documentaries and listened to them in podcasts, and I think they're fascinating, horrible, evil people, but they're fascinating to study and learn from mm-hmm. and learn about. Um, I think the general consensus is that serial killers are shaped by their environments generally. You know, it's generally, uh, for example, they have a powerful, dominating, abusive parents and mothers, and uh, they they lack um, strong, positive relationships in their lives. So, like, usually serial killers are generally made in the, by their environments, whereas Voldemort's different. Obviously, he was shaped by his environment living in that orphanage where I think he learned power systems, and I think he learned that the only way to gain anything is with power. You know, he's in this orphanage, and... And he's controlled by all these 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 people that run the orphanage. I'm sure it wasn't a very pleasant place where power is is a really important facet of, of living and surviving there. But I I would argue why isn't Harry like that though? Okay, so, he didn't have any exactly. Uh, okay, so this is the thing. So the way Voldemort was conceived, and this actually ties in with love yeah. in two ways. Yeah. So Harry was born out of love. He actually had affection from his mother and father for, I think, about a year. So he actually had that. And Harry also has a lot of positive figures throughout his life, and he does experience love. I mean, Petunia technically was a mother to him. Um, And then you can argue that he had other uh, mother-like parents or parent-like characters throughout the films. And he even has the memories of that he hears of James and Lily that he hears from other people. And he has the eyes that he always hears about. Uh, he has the full realm that he the gets album, from Hagrid. Yeah. So I think those things... I think I just mean when he was little, before Hogwarts. Yeah, I'm going to keep going. All and right. so, but still, he still had a mother in his life, some, yeah, even though right. she's horrible. So Riddle, the way he was conceived was not out of love. Har- Harry was conceived out of love. Riddle was conceived out of love potion. So I think that because his father was under uh, the guise of a love potion, this creates this unnatural being to be born who can never understand love, will never appreciate love. So I think Tom Riddle is the exception where, yes, this person was born evil, whereas I don't think serial killers are born evil. But although he does have an upbringing similar to how some serial killers were in like orphanages and stuff like that. So I think it's the combination of both of those things. Also, Riddle is the product of hundreds of years and generations of inbreeding yeah, and incest pure blood. and the gaunts and, you know, married cousins his, his, and pure blood. Yeah, his, his mother was mentally ill. So, you know, yeah. you have that as well. So yeah. I think those are the three contributing factors to why he was born evil, like you said. Yeah, and when Dumbledore finds him, it's an interesting scene because Dumbledore can sense the darkness within him, especially with what Tom reveals about what he's been doing and his powers. And I think that obviously Dumbledore regrets... Um, bringing him to Hogwarts because Dumbledore was the reason why the boy went to Hogwarts. And, I mean, if he never went to Hogwarts, he could have just been, like, he could have done something horrible and gone to jail or something or been killed. And so I think Dumbledore carries a a, a great amount of guilt for being responsible for Tom Riddle um, coming into power. And also, one of my favorite parts about the scene is that we get a, a great clue to the Horcruxes in the scene. So in Tom Riddle's room in the orphanage on his windowsill, there are small rocks sitting in a line. And this is a, a representation of the seven, uh, the, how he will split his soul into seven pieces using Horcruxes. And there's also a small photo. It's just there for a moment, a small photo of that cliffside where he's going to hide one of his Horcruxes. And so uh, it's a great little attention to detail and foreshadowing for Voldemort. And then as an older Tom Riddle, um, when he uh, manipulates Professor Slughorn um, to learn about Horcruxes, 
I think this is a moment where, uh, what year is he? Four, fourth year or fifth year? I think he's the same year that Harry is. Or he, yeah, he's probably like fourth year. Yeah, something. Yeah, because he's still a little younger. Because it happens to Harry in sixth year. Yeah, and being a prolific, a, a, a fantastic student, I think at this point, as dis, as disturbed and disconnected he is as a boy, at this point in his life, he's learned how to blend into society, and so he's looked at as an exemplary student. Uh, very intelligent, very capable young wizard with a promising career ahead of him. And so he's hidden his true nature from everyone in Hogwarts at this point, which is how he's able to manipulate Slughorn being one of the best students, which Slughorn likes and why he invites him to the Slug Club. And so he's able to manipulate Slughorn into revealing information about the Horcruxes and also shows even at such a young age, he's obsessed with escaping death. And I think that Voldemort's biggest, one of his biggest weaknesses is his fear of death. He's always had it since he was a kid. And he fears death more than anyone else in the world. And he goes to extreme lengths to protect his, himself from dying and to uh, obtaining immortality in a way. And so, that, but eventually this will obviously lead to his downfall. But uh, the irony of the Dark Lord is his fear of death. Yeah, you're right. It's his greatest fear. He also fears Dumbledore, but he wants to conquer death because he's so afraid of it. Uses those Horcruxes we know to become immortal, which involves tearing the soul apart, which you do by committing murder and hiding those bits of soul inside powerful objects. Which Well, he chooses powerful objects, yeah. and he chose seven as the most powerful magical number to do it. Uh, he obviously didn't realize that he created another Horcrux with Harry when he tried to kill Harry Potter, which is why some of those abilities that Harry has transferred onto him, like speaking to snakes— um, it's why their wands connect. Yeah, it's why they share the Phoenix core wands. Yeah. So that's why that wand chose Harry Potter's. And that's because, why when they their uh, spells connect, there's like that Super Saiyan connection. Yeah, vortex. yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing about Voldemort, I think the more he learns about his family and his past, that's where he gets more of his ambition and more of his enticement to the dark side. Like uh, in Half-Blood Prince, Throughout the memories in the pensive that Harry and Dumbledore, their journeys they go through in the book, we don't get too much of it. I wish we, we they had time to do it in, yeah. in the movie. Obviously, they can't. It's a two-and-a-half-hour-long movie. You can only get so much in there. But they do a lot of flashbacks of Riddle um, after he leaves Hogwarts. And instead of having a great job, he works at in, he works in um, Flourish and Bots Nocturne Alley, which is a weird choice because he yeah. was head boy, prefect, top student, and he chose this weird job because he wanted to— he already had this plan. He wanted to find dark objects, and we learn how he finds the 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 goblet, the Hel- Helga's, uh, the how he learns to how he learns of the diadem, and how he gets all these objects to to turn into Horcruxes, and it's really fascinating. And obviously, the ring which he he actually goes to the Gaunt, and he's the one that that kills Gaunt, and and he, and he kills his own his own Muggle family when yeah. he's there. And th- that's the irony of Voldemort is. For being obsessed with pure bloods, like you said earlier, he and Umbridge. And Voldemort wants to begin this new line of pure blood wizards. And he he wants to eradicate Muggleborns and he wants to eradicate half bloods and maybe not kill them, but put them into inferior positions in the community. Um and because he views them as an inferior race. And the irony is that he is a half blood and he is one of those so so he says inferior races. And so the irony within Voldemort is so deep, and I think that's what drives his hatred of uh, Half-Bloods and Muggleborns because he is one of them. And I think that he himself doesn't view himself as a good enough wizard because he's not a pure blood. 
And so that's why he's obsessed with being a pure blood, with obsessed with pure blood lines because he himself isn't a pure blood. So the irony is palpable within Voldemort. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he, because he's a half blood, he wants to be the most powerful wizard of all pure bloods, even to make and up for I it. I think he also thinks that he's just an exception. He's yeah. the only half blood that could do this. Yeah. And Voldemort, his over arrogance and this godlike perception of himself is his greatest, one of his greatest weaknesses because he was both the creator and victim of his enemy. Voldemort attempted to kill young Harry after Snape told him about that prophecy that he overheard. And more interesting, we obviously talked about he could have chosen Neville, but um, had had Voldemort not gone out that night to kill Harry, he never would have died or almost died. And you could argue that he would he probably would have taken over the world eventually. I'm sure. I'm sure at that point he was probably matched with Dumbledore in strength and power, and not to mention Dumbledore's older, so he probably could have outlasted him in a long duel. Mm-hmm. But he he created Harry Potter as this villain to him. And then, but what led to his downfall, and which is why Harry is able to defeat him even as an infant, is because of his lack of understanding of love, which you mentioned earlier, and and. Even though the fear of death is could be one of his greatest weaknesses, his lack of understanding of love leads to his downfall. And love uh, beats him in many different ways throughout the series. There's several instances. So, for example, the first time he tries to kill Harry, um, it, he's nearly killed by the, the magic of love that uh, Lily instilled upon Harry by sacrificing herself uh, to save him. And then when Harry kills Quirrell by touching his face, it's the remnants of that love which turns him to stone, which Voldemort once again did not understand. And then when Harry sacrifices himself by walking into the Forbidden Forest and allowing Voldemort to kill him, Harry really thinks he's going to die, and Voldemort really thinks he's going to kill him, but Voldemort doesn't understand that uh, Harry's Harry's so full of love, and he's doing it out of love to protect his friends and family, Um, and this will eventually lead to Voldemort accidentally destroying the Horcrux within Harry because of the love Harry has which will lead to Voldemort's downfall. And then finally, you could say the greatest hutch in in Voldemort's entire plan is Severus Snape, who is driven by his love for Lily. There's also another example of love right after Harry comes, when he uh, leaves the station with Dumbledore. Uh-huh. Um, he has Voldemort has Narcissa go check on Harry yeah. to make sure he's dead. And because of her love for her son Draco, she lies. Yeah, so exactly. another example where he doesn't understand love. Yeah, it's a, it's a, the the downfall of Voldemort is love. Because and, oh, I'm sorry. And one of my favorite parts of that scene is the the King's Cross station, the limbo scene, and you see that when they both Harry and Voldemort are taken into limbo, uh, you can see what the destruction of his soul has done to Voldemort because Harry is still himself in, in the limbo when he's speaking with Dumbledore, but then he sees this tiny creature under a bench that seems to have like no skin and it's writhing in pain and agony. And we learn that this is Voldemort and this is what Voldemort will be in the afterlife for all eternity. He will he will live the rest of he will live for eternity uh, suffering as this disgusting creature. And that's why when when they both wake up from limbo, Voldemort has this look of surprise and shock and fear on his face because he was that creature, and he for the for the first time he realizes the the consequences of his actions, and that be, that makes him very desperate to not die again. And the interesting thing about love is that 
it's a form of magic in the wizarding world, which means it, it really exists in the wizarding world, which is interesting because, you know, you, you, have, you have a partner in the wizarding world and it's because love is real and love exists in there. I'm not saying that love isn't real in the real world, but I'm talking about in the wizarding world, you know, you find your partner, you find this person you love, and it's it's a powerful magical weapon or, or protection. And again, Voldemort has those two fears of death in Albus Dumbledore. And we have the great duel of Dumbledore and Voldemort in Order of the Phoenix at oh, the yeah. end, which is pretty epic. And it's the first time we see magic on a huge scale like this. Yeah. And uh, well, outside of the end of Goblet of Fire. But uh, it, I love this fight because Dumbledore calls Voldemort Tom. He calls him Tom. Yeah. And Voldemort's obviously on the offensive, but Dumbledore in this scene is mostly trying to protect Harry and stall Voldemort so that the ministry can, the Aurors can come and see that Voldemort has come back for themselves. He's um, back. But uh, again, to keep touching on love, when Voldemort tries to possess Harry, he gets he experiences excruciating pain because Harry has so much love in his life and Voldemort and innocence and purity and Voldemort is repulsed by love and he has no love and he doesn't understand it because I think that's because he was born without love because mm -hmm. of the fake love. Yeah, and that's such a great scene and also uh, it's it's difficult for Harry growing up in these films because the older he gets and the more power that Voldemort gains the more he begins experiencing this connection they have. And at first, Harry is worried that it's not a connection with Voldemort, that, but that he himself has darkness within him. And he's worried, why does he speak sparsel tongue? Why is his, his scar burn? Like, why, does, why are these strange things happening to him? And it's Dumbledore who puts him at ease when he explains that uh, when he defeated Voldemort as a baby, uh, part of... Voldemort was imprinted onto Harry, which was the Horcrux. And so that's why Harry has a few characteristics in common with Voldemort. And that's why he has this uh, like mental uh, and emotional connection with Voldemort as well. Why he can, he can see what Voldemort's doing sometimes when he's asleep. And he can feel memories of Voldemort. So uh, at first, the, the connection worries Harry, but eventually Dumbledore explains it all. And what Voldemort truly doesn't understand about love and... They show this, and this is explicitly clear when he resurrects at the end of Goblet of Fire, is by by using the blood of Harry Potter to rise again and create his new life form and his new body. He's taking that that blood and that love, and he thinks it's going to make him more powerful, but it, he creates a weakness for himself, and it creates even more of that connection between Harry and Voldemort. It's what li literally prevents him from killing Harry. Exactly, and that's why he's able. That's why when he kills Harry. In, in Deathly Hallows, it doesn't kill Harry, it just kills the Horcrux within him. And that's what helps connect their wands so as well. So he gave Harry more protection. Yeah, exactly. He thinks he's a god and he has this hubris and his over-arrogance leads to him also misunderstanding the Elder Wand. And he thinks that the possession of the Elder Wand, it simply means taking the wand from the person who just last had it. But he doesn't understand that Draco Malfoy was the true master of the Elder Wand because he disarmed Albus Dumbledore on top of the tower, not Snape because he killed Dumbledore. So he doesn't understand that it's not just about killing. It doesn't have to end in death to get uh, power of the Elder Wand. And also he was mistaken before that because he thought that the wand was the reason why he couldn't kill Harry, but yeah. ultimately it's because of him. Mm -hmm. the, the reason He physically cannot kill Harry until the Horcrux is eliminated within Harry first. Yeah, and so Harry... And so after, after the Horcrux is killed and they both come back out of limbo, then Harry is vulnerable. 
And so then it's really every both both of their lives are on the line. And then Harry is the possessor of the Elder Wand because he disarmed Draco when he stole the wand back. So yeah. Harry has the protection of love. He has the he has the strength of the Elder Wand, and that's why he's able to defeat Voldemort. And that's why when he defeats Voldemort, Voldemort has no pieces of his soul left. Yeah. Because they killed Nagini. Neville chopped that thing's head off with the sword, and he just dissipates and dissolves into into the afterlife of, of it, whatever misery he's gonna have. And then since Harry is the complete opposite of Voldemort. When he is given the power of the Elder Wand, he breaks it in half because he is not, he, he couldn't be further, he's the opposite side of the same coin as Voldemort. And he could conquer death, but he chooses to live a normal life. Yeah. Ray finds, uh, define this character so well. And I mean, I'm sure there will be ad- adaptations in the future, but he did such a good job with this. Uh, he's menacing, terrifying, funny at times, uh, but just disturbing. And uh, I, I I read an article where, to this day, whenever he meets kids, they're terrified of him because <laughs> <laughs> they think he's Voldemort. <laughs> I would be too. Yeah, but you know, Harry Potter again—amazing villains, amazing characters. We love these stories so much, and we could do an hour just on Voldemort. So yeah. obviously, that's just scratching the surface on the character because there's so much more to talk about. So, but hopefully, you enjoyed this this Harry Potter villains episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Is we want to do something different, something a little more fun and relaxed. And we love Harry Potter, and we we know a lot of you do too. So it's, thanks for tuning in. Take care, everyone. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Hit that subscribe button and notification bell. Listen to the audio formats of Raiders of the Lost Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast.